good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Depending on whom you ask, it's either one of the most promising and uplifting medical discoveries of our lifetime or it's the dawn of a dystopian future of designer babies and attempts to create a master race. I'm talking about gene editing, which comes with a host of ethical questions. And experts say those concerns are really legitimate and that we have got to address them. But they also say it's a technology that could prove invaluable for increasing the quality of life and for predicting future pandemics like the one we're living through right now. My next guest has a new book that looks at these questions through the life and career of the hero who led the development of the gene editing tool called CRISPR. Walter Isaacson is a best-selling author and historian, and his new book is called The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Walter Isaacson, welcome to Detroit Today having me and congratulations on Detroit Today. Great show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's really great to have you here. So let's start with why you choose Jennifer Doudna and her research into gene editing as the subject for this book. What is it about this story that grabbed you? I think this will be the most consequential technology of our lifetime. You know, you and I have gone through the digital revolution where it gave us iPhones and Facebook and personal computers, and that really transformed things. This will be 10 times more important because what it means is we can treat molecules the way we treat microchips. We can recode them. We can recode uh, RNA molecule to build a spike protein in our bodies so that we become immune to coronavirus. Or we can uh, program a molecule to cut a gene that we may have and don't want, or even add a gene we might want. So uh, you're talking about being able to uh, design babies, but also cure uh, really bad diseases. And I think uh, I wanted to show how it works. And the best way to do it is through a journey of discovery involving a person. And Jennifer Doudna is this brilliant, nice scientist who grew up in Hawaii and has went on a journey of discovery, figuring out all of what RNA could do, then gene editing, and now wrestling with the ethical and moral implications of it. Hmm. So, so I, I, of course, want to talk quite a bit about uh, Jennifer Doudna and about gene editing, but, but I want to kind of pull the lens back uh, a bit first and talk about your approach to this kind of subject matter. There's something about this person and her work and this book that reminds me uh, of, of your biography of Steve Jobs, uh, the, the, the founder of of Apple. And and I guess the, the connection that I see is, number one, the sort of um, exploration of the personal narrative that is behind this kind of technological discovery. But then the second is the, 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 the tension between the promise that these technologies uh, come with, but also the peril, the potential danger uh, that lurks behind him. I, I want to have you talk just a little about that before we get into uh, Doudna and gene editing. Right. I think if you do it as a personal journey, you realize that science, technology, the advances of all forms of knowledge 
don't just happen, but they come through people. And they have the personalities of the people who created them. Their fingerprints are on uh, the new technologies and sciences we have. And just like Steve Jobs is there on the iPhone, and for that matter, the iPod or the Macintosh, uh, the people who created gene editing and were driven to uh, figure out how to do these new life sciences technologies, it's important to know their story, uh, their motives, uh, and maybe demystify it a bit. We're in an era when people are sometimes anti-science, whether it's climate or vaccines or anything else. And if you personalize a journey and you say, here's how we got here and here's who got us here, it makes it more understandable. And that way we can engage in the real ethical questions like, should we be designing our babies? And maybe we'll say, yes, if our child is going to have a horrible genetic disease, we should try to fix that. But no, if it's maybe we want our child to be eight inches taller or, you know, have a different hair color. And those are the type of discussions we need to have as a society over the next 10, 20 years as this technology comes online. And the best way to have it is to actually understand the technology and how we got the technology. Mm. Uh, How fearful do you think we should be about the potential danger, especially with, with, with gene editing? I mean, when you, when you sort of put it into the, sort of context and history of this kind of work. I mean, there are lots of really scary portraits you could you could paint about it. Uh, you've spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to tell the story. How, how fearful should we really be about this? I don't think we need to be fearful now. First of all, I don't think that most of the scary parts of the technology, they're, they're you know, 20, 30 years away. I do think we have to start thinking about what guidelines should we have, what should we permit and not permit. If we get too scared of the technology, we're not going to use it for the really good things it can do. For example, and I'm not talking about things in the future, I'm talking about things that happen now. For example, Victoria Gray is a person in my book. She lives in Mississippi. She just went to Memphis, and she was cured of sickle cell using this gene editing technology. Mm. Excuse me. Um, And as you know, I mean, sickle cell is a simple genetic mutation Mm -hmm. and just one letter. And so that gets fixed. Sickle cell is a devastating disease for a lot of people. So is uh, Huntington's or Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis or multiple sclerosis. So we should start by fixing those diseases and patients that consent and want to have that done. And then we can go down the slope, which could be slippery if we don't do it cautiously, of, all right, we can do that. Should we start doing some other things like enhancements? Um, so you mentioned earlier a little about Doudna's childhood, uh, but you write extensively about it uh, in, in the book and how she was told at a young age that, you know, girls don't become scientists and don't make great discoveries. Uh, tell us more about that story and then what made her pursue the path that she did anyway. When she came home one day from school, in middle school, uh, she found on her bed a book her dad had left her. Her dad used to do that every now and then, leave a book on her bed. And it was the double helix, the story of the discovery of the structure of DNA. And Jennifer at first thought it was just a mystery or detective story because she loved paperback 
detective stories, and she put it aside. But then when she picked it up on a rainy Saturday, she realized in some ways it was a detective story. It was finding the clues to the secrets of life. And she became mesmerized by this notion that there are things that happen in our body that determine who we become and who we are. And there was a character in that book that's treated rather who was treated rather condescendingly by um, Jim Watson, uh, and the character's name Rosalind Franklin. And she's a great scientist who helped do the image work, the photography work that led to the discovery of DNA structure. And Jennifer looked at that character, read about that character, and said, my goodness, girls can be scientists. But her school guidance counselor said, no, girls don't become scientists. Hmm. So she persisted, and she became a chemist and a biologist. And, you know, every now and then she was insecure about that. She said, well, maybe I should major in French or literature instead. But she loved the beauty of science, and it took her on this path uh, in which she becomes a Nobel Prize winner this past October uh, for the discovery of this gene editing technology. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Walter Isaacson. He's a best-selling author and professor of history at Tulane University. He's author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. Uh, he's also, of course, uh, the author of the biography of Steve Jobs. That was largely the basis for the hit movie about the Apple founder. Uh, we're talking about uh, gene editing and this incredible technology, the potential it opens up uh, to change our lives, to change so many things about uh, about our, our medical uh, lives. Um, and we're also talking, though, about the potential for a danger with something this powerful uh, in the hands of human beings. Uh, if you want to join the com- conversation, give us a call. Tell us what your feelings are about the prospect of human gene editing and the ethical questions that uh, it presents. Do you welcome this technology as a way to prevent de- diseases uh, or even as a way to prevent future viral pandemics like the one we're living through right now? Or do you think this is a dangerous new frontier that could have really bad unintended consequences. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Also, uh, let us know if you're somebody who is already benefiting from some of the the technologies uh, that are involved with uh, with gene editing, how has that uh, how has that gone for you, uh, Walter? Before we get to listeners, um, you you note that beyond gene editing, Doudna actually played a big role in the development of the coronavirus vaccines that uh, so many of us are getting right now. I got my first dose on Monday. Uh, tell us about that achievement and what is meant uh, for uh, all of our uh, our lives. It's this discovery about the structure of RNA that uh, is at the heart of these vaccines. Yeah, these new vaccines, if you got the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, don't use the traditional method of finding a virus and then deactivating it and growing it and putting it in your body, which, you know, is kind of a messy process. What it does is it simply takes a piece of RNA 
And what RNA does in our body is it instructs each cell how to build proteins, how we make new cells, make a hair follicle or a fingernail or a hormone or anything else. And you can program RNA to make any uh, protein we decide we want to make. And this is something that in the 1990s, people like Jennifer Doudna, who were working on what RNA can do, help discover all these wonderful properties. You know, DNA is the famous cousin, but RNA is the one that actually can do a whole lot of work. It's really versatile. And so when you do the RNA vaccines, like I had the Pfizer, and you probably had a Pfizer or Moderna. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It just tells our cells, build a tiny fragment of the spike protein, that that famous spike protein that's on the surface of a coronavirus, And that way, if the real coronavirus comes in, your immune system's already ready and knows how to kill it. And so this is another example of us just being able to use the genetic coding to recode a molecule and Mm. say, do our bidding. And, you know, in gene editing, we recode an RNA to say, cut our gene at a certain place. In the vaccines, we code an RNA to say, make a fragment of a spike protein. And it's, as I said, it's like molecules have become the new microchip, and it allows us to do things that are so much safer and easier and faster. And the good thing is you can reprogram it. So let's say the virus mutates, as it has been, Mm -hmm. and suddenly the spike protein looks a little bit different. You just recode it and say, okay, here's now what you're looking for, uh, and you, you make a booster shot for the vaccine. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to ask you about something I heard discussed, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago. Somebody said that this is actually the path to curing cancer, that, that, that this is the one of the way stations, I guess, on the way to uh, a, a cure for 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 cancer is that is that true and and yeah. is that uh, is that something that we expect would happen somewhat soon? Not not only is it true, it's already happening. <clears throat> Unfortunately, China's a little bit ahead of us. They're using it for cancer treatments now, hmm. but it's also being done at the University of Pennsylvania this past year in a clinical trial. And what you do is. The best ways that we fight cancer now, the newest ways, are called immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of that. Mm-hmm. It's taking our own immune system and telling it, kill the cancer cells. Now, if you have a battle between our immune cells and the cancer cells, sometimes the cancer cells are clever enough to find a way to turn off our immune system cells so that they don't kill the cancer cells. With gene editing, there are ways you can tweak things in the body. You can tweak our T cells that are our immune cells, and you can tweak them so that the cancer cells can't turn them off. Mm. And that's a way to make very targeted cancer-fighting treatments. And as we go along, we'll be able to code because all cancers are different almost. I mean, any cancer tumor has some differences from others. And you can code and target specifically the cancer in an individual patient. So it gets to two types of things that are at the forefront of medicine. Immunotherapy, which is just a way of saying, use your own immune system to fight something. And secondly, personalized medicine to say, hey, 
you know, the cancer you have may be different from other people's cancer, so we're going to give you personalized treatments. Uh, the new type of genetic medicine that I'm talking about in this book and that Jennifer Dowd and so many other characters in the book helped develop, uh, this new type of approach to our health will bring us down that road as well, which is a wonderful benefit. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the show. Let's go to Ann in Waterford. Ann, welcome to the show. Hi, can you hear me all right? I sure can. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you, Ann. Go ahead. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm calling about the socioeconomic aspects of what your guest is talking about, which he has not addressed at all. This type of treatment would be available only to wealthy people or people from countries like the United States. Mm. Uh, and poor, even poor people in those countries would not have it available. So what you're essentially doing, you're creating a master race. Mm. Only a certain part of society would have this gene editing available. And so what do you say about that? Yeah, and it's a it's a great question, uh, and I really appreciate your calling and asking it, uh, Walter Isaacson. What about the inequities that exist, uh, not just across nations, but within them, that would, as Anne says, uh, you know, reserve this kind of technology, the benefits of this kind of technology for for the wealthy. It's a very very important point, and the only thing I'll push back on is when you say, I haven't addressed it, of course, uh, I assume you haven't read the book, but there are multiple chapters in the book Mm -hmm. about this very important issue, which is, should the rich be able to buy better genes for their kids? Should a treatment like the one who that saved Victoria Gray from sickle cell down in Mississippi, you know, that costs a million dollars. So Jennifer Doudner, the heroine of my book, is leading the way to say multiple things. One is... We have to bring down the cost of these things radically. And in some ways, these type of gene editing treatments will be far cheaper than the type of treatments that we now have to use to do things like fight sickle cell. Secondly, uh, how do we have regulation so that the rich don't get to buy better genes and create uh, what we see in Brave New World or Gattaca, where the privileged get better genes? So these are both scientific and technological things we have to do to make sure there's wide accessibility to this. And secondly, these are political and policy decisions we have to make to say we're not going to allow treatments that that tend to enhance the privileged people who can buy uh, better health uh, for their kids or for themselves. And uh, so throughout the book, uh, I look at this issue and the people who are on the vanguard of trying to make sure there's equity when it comes to our next wave of genetic medicine. Yeah. Uh, I I think perhaps the vaccine that we are distributing now for coronavirus is an example of that. I mean, as you point out, this has been developed along the same line of scientific thinking. And, you know, I mean, we've had challenges the entire time so far with, uh, you know, who gets the vaccine and what in what order Uh, is it going to be available in, uh, you know, in in poor areas? How do you get poor people who are less trusting of uh, the medical establishment in some cases to to take the vaccine? Let me um, also 
look uh, at the optimistic side of that. Mm-hmm. We're rolling out vaccines very fast uh, as of the past week or two. I mean, more than two million per day. And secondly, anybody can get one. I mean, anybody can afford one in the sense that the government has helped fund this, and it was a policy decision. So when I went in to get my uh, vaccine, nobody said, what's your insurance? Nobody said, here's your co-payment. Nobody said, you got to pay money. And so you can make policy decisions so that uh, a vaccine like coronavirus vaccine we're getting now is something that's not distributed based on ability to pay. And I'm here in New Orleans, my hometown. I look at the statistics every day. Uh, because we've had a, a great program by Mayor Latoya Contrell on outreach, there's actually a higher percentage of African Americans who have been vaccinated than uh, whites have been vaccinated because you're sending vans into neighborhoods, you're having celebrities go out and make sure that everybody in every neighborhood tries to come out and get this vaccine. Uh, the way that I say all this is, A, we can do it right if we decide to do it right, and it's simply a policy choice to yeah. do it right. It could have been a policy choice to make people say, you know, whoever can afford the vaccine and whoever pays the most gets it first. But smartly as a country and smartly in each of the states, we made the policy decision that we're not going to charge for this vaccine and we're going to pay for it, you know, out of the common pool of taxes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Walter Isaacson. We will also get to more of your questions and comments. Maurice in Detroit, John on the East Side will hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is a community service of Wayne State University, a premier public research university in the heart of Detroit. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest this hour is Walter Isaacson, best-selling author and professor of history at Tulane University. He's also the author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. We're talking about uh, all of the exciting potential for this gene editing technology that's been developed, but also talking about uh, some of the tensions that surround it uh, in terms of uh, potential downfalls, potential dangers, uh, but also we were just talking before the break uh, about the social inequities that exist in our society and trying to make sure that they don't play out in access to these kinds of wonderful medical advances. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think of this kind of medical technology. Are you excited about it? Are you worried about it? Uh, how do you think we should be pursuing these things and their implementation. Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, of course, and put comments there, or to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Walter, before we get back to to listeners, uh, I want to ask you about something you've said 
about what, where we're headed. You say that the first half of the 20th century was the Industrial Revolution. The latter half was the Digital Tech Revolution. And you say the first half of this century is going to be the Life Science Revolution. I wonder if you can explain for our listeners what that means. Yes, Stephen. I mean, we grew up with our iPhones and our personal computers, and we kind of had a sense of the wonders of microchips. So we could program them to do whatever we want, to cut and paste our Word docs or send pictures or make tweets or, you know, summon Uber cars or whatever uh, with these wonderful devices like iPhones and personal computers. I think now we're doing the same with the molecules in our body. Instead of a two-letter code, you know, zeros and ones of the digital binary code, we're going to have the four-letter codes of uh, DNA and RNA that we're going to use to do things like tell our cells to build this, as we mentioned earlier, the uh, part of the spike protein if we want to get a virus uh, vaccination. Or we can say, hey, let's program our body to change some of our genetic code if we have a genetic disease or we want an enhancement that can possibly be done genetically. And even more than the digital revolution, this opens up huge, wonderful potential for making us healthier, but it also opens up huge and sometimes challenging moral issues about uh, do we really want to hack the code of life? I mean, finally, after... uh, three billion years of life on this planet, one species, meaning us, has the talent but also the temerity to hack its own evolution. Mm. So that raises some big questions, Stephen. Yeah, no, it really does. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Maurice in Detroit. Maurice, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks mm-hmm. to your guest. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, an issue that um, an organization I run actually wrote a report on, and that's the the patents behind um, all of these types of things, and and how it leads to some of the issues the last caller was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I think that a lot of these medicines are produced uh, through the public, either through public universities or funded by public grants, um, but then for-profit companies come in, they lock in patents, sometimes in, in really messy uh, and, and unjust ways that um, allow them to charge whatever they, they want. Um, and just to give you, you know, an, an example, um, remdesivir, which is a, you know, one of the folks who recognize as one of the treatments for coronavirus, mm-hmm. the company there tried to, to lock in a rare, uh, a rare disease uh, designation for that drug when coronavirus had affected less than 200,000 people that would have locked in its patent for, you know, seven years and had them pay no taxes. Um, And this is something that happens with all sorts of of medicines that for-profit companies um, are involved in. And I'm just wondering how we, um, how your guests would see stopping this from just becoming another haven for for for-profit drug companies Hmm. to dodge taxes and to lock in patents forever. Yeah. Maurice, great question. Thank you uh, very much for the call. Uh, Walter, uh, how do you answer that? Maurice, it is a very good question. And in my book, uh, I have not only the patent lawyers, but the people fighting the patent lawyers have wonderful pictures even of people involved in the patent battles here. And as you know, it's a uh, delicate balancing act. Uh, Let's take CRISPR, the gene editing technology. At the moment, there's still a patent battle going on 
uh, between Jennifer Gaudner and Emmanuel Charpentier, the group uh, I, you know, that are the center of my book, uh, versus the people at MIT and Harvard who also got patents on this technology. But the inspiring thing in the book is that when coronavirus struck, they put aside all these patent battle wars, and they all turned their attention to fighting coronavirus and using these RNA tools and other things uh, to make detection technologies, virus, uh, antiviral drugs, as well as the vaccines. And they did not assert patent rights on this. They said, we're putting these things in the public domain as soon as we discover it so people can use it to fight the coronavirus. It's a bit of a delicate balancing act, because even though I agree with you, especially when it comes to things like remdesivir or whatever, that uh, you, that drug companies should not jack up the price of these drugs, the research that, whether it be Jennifer Doudna or the people at MIT Harvard, too, is often funded by the fact that they get patents on, uh, on the type of things they produce. And so what we have to do, in my opinion is make sure that patents aren't exploited by large corporations and others to truly jack up prices, but that patents are done in a limited way. So people, as the first article of the Constitution says, that, you know, inventors get the rights to uh, their ingenious uh, uh, things they've invented, mm -hmm. uh, but we don't let uh, uh, unnecessary profits come in where uh, you have a monopoly that can... Uh, uh, certainly profit off of this. So, so you, you referenced the, the patent dispute or, or fight mm -hmm. that Jennifer Doudna and her group are involved in. Can you talk just a little more about, uh, about that and, and how that's playing out? Yeah. In uh, January of uh, 2012, uh, Jennifer Doudna and her lab at Berkeley, along with her research partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, a French biologist, they led the way that year to figuring out how you use this gene editing tool called CRISPR, which is, is a trick that bacteria have been using for a billion years, but they repurposed it so that it could edit uh, genes. And then they got a patent on it, and what their discovery was. And I think that's legitimate. I mean, ever since, as I said, 1790, if you make a discovery, you can get a patent on it. Uh, they had a rival group uh, led by a wonderful guy named Fong Zhang, who's at MIT, and he showed how it could be used in human cells. Now I'm getting into a little bit of a legal arcana, but the question was, all right, you've taken their, the discovery of CRISPR that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier made, and you've improved it so it can be used in human cells. And so they gave him a patent as well. And those patents conflict, so there's been a battle over, you know, who deserves the priority in the patent case. Mm. And that is in some ways disappointing. I mean, you would kind of hope they'd just call each other up and right. shake hands and say, let's settle these patent battles. But the good thing, as I mentioned, is that when coronavirus came along, it kind of took the air out of that uh, fight. Uh, it was like, oh, wait, why are we fighting over the patents for these things? I should be focusing on coronavirus. So uh, I try, when I do a narrative, this is not a preaching story. This is not uh, me telling you, here's what you have to think. I just tell you the story of real human beings. And this is a real human being, Jennifer Doudna, and 
a rival she has, a competitor named Fong Zhang, and here's what they're thinking, and here's what they did, and mm-hmm. you can make your own judgments. Maybe they shouldn't have tried to patent this, but um, I want people to understand the journeys of discovery. And in a broader sense, what drives people to invent and do things in science? Mm. Well, partly it's prizes, like Jennifer wins a Nobel Prize. Sure. Partly it's patents, because you make a couple million dollars if you can get a patent like that. Partly it's to be published first. But I think I wanted to remind even the participants in my book, as well as the readers of the book, that you're also doing it because it helps humanity. And at a certain point when we're faced with this horrible coronavirus crisis, that might remind you that the real reason we're doing this is not just patents and prizes and profits. We're doing it because we we believe science can make our lives better. And that's sort of the narrative thread of the book. But I'll let the reader follow it to the people and see to what extent do they feel this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Maurice, really great question. I'm, I'm glad you called. It was, Maurice. Thank asked you. It. Uh, Dutch on Twitter has a question. He says, I always feel when great discoveries arise, eventually technology that's meant for good will be used with ill intentions. Has the discussion of weaponizing gene editing taken place and how to prevent that from happening? Yes. Soon after Jennifer Doudna invented with Emmanuel Charpentier, this technology of using CRISPR to edit our genes. Jennifer had a nightmare. And it was somebody said, come into this room, I want to understand the technology you've invented. And when she goes into the room, the person looks up, and it's Hitler. So she has trouble sleeping for the next, you know, weeks. And she decides she's going to gather religious leaders, political leaders, scientists, all from around the world, her Chinese colleagues, so that they can start a series of international summits and say, how can we avoid bad actors or enemy powers from weaponizing this or using it to create a master race, as the eugenics of the Nazis intended to do? So, uh, first of all, they've put in certain understandings and rules that are encoded like in the United States in our FDA approval process, but also in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a doctor in China who used this to make inheritable edits. He was arrested and put in jail. So uh, we're trying to get this international consensus of what should you be able to do and what you should not be able to do. And I, I also think we have to defend against a rogue actor who's going to try to, like, edit mosquitoes to make them more deadly. And so the Defense Department is one of the biggest funders of some of this technology to create what's called anti-CRISPR, which is pretty much what it sounds like, just mm-hmm. like you can have a ballistic missile system and then somebody creates an anti-ballistic missile system that'll shoot it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Defense Department is trying, and Jennifer Dowd is in the lead of that, trying to find ways to make it so that you could turn off a CRISPR system if a bad person developed it. Wow. Wow. That's uh, it's actually really fascinating. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, Dutch uh, on Twitter, thanks very much for that I'm question. I'm not doing it. Jennifer is, but, <laughs> right. and so are all these scientists. But I, I hope the book makes it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. So, so I, I did figure it out since I talked to uh, Anna, but 
the the uh, show was on the uh, All Things Considered back in February, and they were discussing how at the very beginning of the pandemic, a uh, Chinese firm, uh, Genomics Institute, was offering like Washington State and others free COVID testing setups, and and the real concern was they were after the DNA, so they could get the DNA of Americans and mm. provide us with medical uh, prescriptions and what you whatever for the rest of our lives. Oh, you have high cholesterol. You're going to have uh, dementia. You're going to have uh, breast cancer. That kind of stuff. And then they would provide us with the medic medications for that. And you know that's pretty scary to to think that they're already setting us up for mm. billing us mm. <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, 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 that's an interesting. That's an interesting issue to raise in the context of uh, of this con of this conversation and the technology. Uh, Walter Isaacson, what what do you say about that? Well, I do think that we have to um, figure out to what extent are we competing with the Chinese on these technologies, and uh, there's a lot of reasons we are. And to what extent uh, can we uh, be able to work together with some of the Chinese scientists, especially? on uh, cancer treatments where they're ahead of the game. And uh, yes, I don't think we should necessarily trust uh, various uh, Chinese companies, whether it's they want to build chips for our cell phones or they want to build uh, uh, testing devices uh, for our genetic diseases. But uh, that's one of the things that we're going to face in this new world. Mm. Uh, I, I want to ask you also about Jennifer Doudna, who is become an ambassador of sorts for having really honest conversations about the ethical dilemmas that uh, this technology presents. But do you sense that she has any reservations about the thing that she created? I mean, is she fearful? Well, yeah. I mean, I mentioned that uh, Hitler dream that she had, and mm -hmm. that caused her reservations to surface and for her to decide, okay, let's, let's think this through. And it's, you know, it's not like just yes or no, do you want gene editing? I try to do it in the book with not only Jennifer Doudna, but so many of the other people involved in this issue, and say, let's go case by case, step by step. Will we do it to cure sickle cell anemia in a patient? Well, of course we would. Hmm. Will we do it to genetically edit uh, people who have sickle cell anemia so that their children will not have that disease? Well, that crosses a line of uh, you now making inheritable edits. There's a wonderful kid in my book named David Sanchez. He's a great ethical thinker, uh, even though he's only 17. He loves playing basketball, except for when he doubles over in pain because he's got sickle cell. Mm -hmm. And so they're helping treat him for that. And they tell him, at some point we can do CRISPR, and your children will not inherit sickle cell, nor will their children. And at first he says, that's great. Then he has second thoughts. He says, well, maybe we should wait till the kids are born and let them decide. And he said, well, do you want your kid to have sickle cell? He says, no, but it taught me empathy. It built my character. It, you know, wow. it, it taught me patience. So maybe we should let the kids decide. And then I go back to him a few months later and he's having third thoughts like, well, yeah, I wouldn't want my kid to have sickle cell. <laughs> so maybe you should edit it so my kids won't have sickle cell. And so we watch as we all have first, second, and third thoughts about it. 
And you talk about, well, can we make it affordable? Well, the best way to make it affordable is uh, to do it so that it's not inherited by people. So anyway, these are not simple questions, but I try to march through the book with not only the scientists, but 17-year-olds like David Sanchez, and let him talk and help us as we can go hand-in-hand with him and try to think through when would you use this and when would you not use it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Walter Isaacson, uh, author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. Uh, This was a wonderful conversation. I'm really glad uh, you joined us. And congratulations uh, on the book, of course. Thank you so much, Stephen, and congratulations on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for us. Uh, Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with political strategist Heather McGee about what the new $1.9 trillion spending bill means in terms of how we as a nation think of poverty. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.